Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org, and today we will talk about Ukrainian history, and in particular about the new ways to approach Ukrainian history or other histories in plural. My guest is Catherine Younger, a historian of modern Eastern Europe and research director of Ukraine in the European Dialogue Program at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, Austria. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining this podcast. So we are in, in Vienna in a wonderful uh, institute. So can we, can we start with talking about this institute? Why it became a kind of a magnet for studying Central and Eastern Europe in recent times? So in 1982, the Institute for Human Sciences was founded by a group of young Polish and German philosophers, linguists, historians, sociologists, people from across the humanities who thought that we needed a place that could bring together thinkers from Eastern Europe with thinkers from Western Europe, right? So at that time, of course, bridging this Cold War divide. As the decades have gone on, we are very convinced that our mission has become no less relevant, right? It's not simply the Iron Curtain fell. Suddenly, we understood each other perfectly. Instead, what's important is sustained dialogue between thinkers, public intellectuals, scholars from all across Europe and the world more broadly. And so here in Vienna, of course, this pinnacle of neutrality during the Cold War, we became the site of this institute, the Institute for Human Sciences, and since then we've tried to foster this dialogue. It's interesting that Vienna is now, you know, uh, turning into kind of the central point, the focal point, because Central European University is moving to Vienna from Budapest uh, because of certain, you know, developments in, in Hungary, as, as we know. Uh, this institute, interestingly, that it was set up in early 80s, you know, when there was a martial law in Poland and uh, and people like uh, Krzysztof Michalski and, and they were trying to you know to uh, to do this work so it's yeah it's it's interesting how Vienna becomes really a a, a, a center for central and Eastern Europe right Well, and there are, of course, historic resonances across the centuries, right? I mean, as, and we'll get into this a little bit, I'm sure, but as a historian of Western Ukraine in the 19th century, right, Vienna was the intellectual center in a lot of, of ways at the time, right? So all of my characters and all of these folks come through Vienna, through the university here, and this is a site where they meet others from across the empire, but also across Europe more broadly. Franco defended his thesis absolutely, in Vienna. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think you know, I write about the Greek Catholic Church, so I think about the centrality of Vienna and the Barbareum as an intellectual center for Greek Catholic theology. But it's played that role in different ways in the years since then, right? So, of course, in the Cold War era, as a neutral city, it did... It, it had the possibility to be a different sort of intellectual center. And yes, in a lot of ways, Vienna was a backwater during the Cold War, right? It was almost nothing but spies in a certain sense. But it did have this possibility within it. And the founders of the Institute recognized that Vienna had this possibility. And in the decades since, I think that's continued to grow. It's interesting that in here in the library, uh, philosophy is playing so much role. So you, you, you really see how it was set up by philosophers, for example, And interestingly, philosophers who were 
thinking about Nietzsche and Heidegger rather about in Central and Eastern Europe. But you mentioned this Barbareum. Barbareum uh, exists up until today. There is a co-working, Ukrainian co-working in the St. Barbara Church, Greek Catholic Church here in, 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 in Vienna downtown. So it's interesting how it emerges. And I remember, you know, I'm, uh, I was interested recently by a very interesting Ukrainian philosopher, emigre philosopher, uh, Shlomkevich. And uh, he was in his memoirs, we, we are seeing how he was, before the First World War, he was going through the Stadtpark and talking with his colleagues about philosophy and about Ukraine, etc., etc. So we really see uh, how Vienna is playing a very interesting role for even for Ukrainian history. Well, and absolutely, and this makes me think very much of Ernst Gellner's nations and nationalism, right? And the, his idea, his big idea, was that these urban centers, these imperial urban centers, serve kind of as the forges of new national ideas and new group identities, right? When you're taken out of your villages or your provincial towns and you come to this big metropolis, this big imperial center, and you are alienated in some ways by not being part of the dominant group, and yet having these opportunities to interact with others, then you come up with these new ideas for your own nation, for your own group. And so Vienna, I think, has played that role in a long, uh, for a long time and in some ways continues to. That's interesting because uh, we, can, we can talk about you know, how empires and nations are interact and how we can probably go beyond this very simplistic view that there are nations against empires because in some imperial centers, you know, nations will be were concentrating this intellectual actual potential and uh, it's interesting how for example the Habsburg empire was was trying really at least in in the in the probably last decades of its, of its existence so trying to kind of uh, think about how empire can be also an a federation of nation kingdoms or something like that yeah absolutely and i think this is what this is the kind of most interesting work that's currently being done in sort of the field of Habsburg history is recognizing that contrary to the long established narrative that the Habsburg empire was was always on the verge of collapse, right? As Peter Judson in particular has written in his most recent history, the Habsburg Empire was incredibly innovative in its strategies to deal with this federation of peoples that it was dealing with, right? The ways that it made compromises, yes, we've known about that for a long time, but it also had these kind of interesting ways of trying to connect people across the empire to the center and kind of create these loyalties, these layered loyalties. It's interesting how the Russian Empire and the Habsburg Empire are interacting also in this historical dimension because uh, the famous Ukrainian intellectual Mikhail Drahomanov, who was thinking of reforming Russian Empire in terms of this federation, which probably became later foundation for the vision how Soviet Union was created. Well, it was a fake federation, but still a federation, right? But he was forced out of the Russian Empire. He came to Galicia and, you know, uh, proposed this idea to them. And maybe from that moment on, from the 70s, we can count on, you know, uh, Ukrainian movement in Galicia, right? Absolutely. And in fact, you know, this is one of the keys to understanding 19th century Ukrainian history, right? Is this imperial boundary that runs through what is today the, the territory of Ukraine. And so you have this intellectual exchange going across. You have people on both sides observing how the empires on the other side work. But not only that, you also have the two imperial administrations observing and 
taking ideas from each other, but also being deeply concerned about how the other one is working. Exactly. And so playing off of each other in both a positive and a negative sense. And I think that really shaped the 19th century. It's interesting that in, in the Russian historical discourse, or let's say pro-Kremlin, because there are different, you know, but pro-Kremlin historical discourse, there is still this idea that Austrians invented, in, invented Ukrainians. Wonder if in the Austrian discourse there is an idea that Russians invented Ukrainians, you know, to to kind of uh, uh, to to insert some kind of uh, you know time bomb in the Habsburg Empire. Oh, believe me, n- not today so much, but believe me. I, I mean, when I sat in the archives here in the center of Vienna and read all of the correspondence that was coming out, they were terrified. The Austrian bureaucrats were terrified that there really was something going on that the Russians were doing all of this to try to create these troublesome Ukrainians in Galicia who were going to undermine the empire, right? And so that's actually why you get, most famously in 1882, there was a high treason trial where a Greek Catholic priest convinced a group of parishioners to convert to Orthodoxy right 20 kilometers away from the border with the Russian empire. And because of that, it was 100 people, right? But because of this heightened anxiety over Russians' plans vis-a-vis the Ruthenian Ukrainian population, it got elevated to the level of a high treason trial. It's very interesting, but actually it's also interesting that Russians were not really interested in making Ukrainians, but they were interested in making the Orthodox or to turn the Ruthenians of the Austro-Habsburg Empire into Russians. And that's very interesting how we see, for example, on the level of language. Because if you read the famous Austrian writer of the time, uh, Leopold von Zachermazer, who was born in, in Lemberg in Lviv, and he... Uh, uses the term Russisch, for example, what does he mean? Does he mean Russian or Ruthenian, meaning Ukrainian, right? So it's interesting how we see also in adjectives or words that are used. Absolutely. And this, with in the case of Zacher von, von Zacher Mazoch, it's a little more, he at least has firsthand experience, right? He knows what he's talking about. But more broadly, there's so much slippage in the terminology used. And this comes from a lack of firsthand familiarity in a lot of cases. And this is one way in which the Ukrainian experience can take something can can benefit from understanding sort of a broader sort of approach to imperial or colonial history, right? You have these imperial bureaucrats who are making decisions many thousands of kilometers removed who don't actually know firsthand what they're talking about. So then what you have to do is look at who are they getting their information from and how are they learning about what's going on. And in the case of the Ruthenian population of Galicia, of course, that's mostly coming from the Polish population that lives there. And so it was in some ways in the ruling Polish class's interest to portray what was going on as being very Russian. Exactly, exactly. And then it's interesting what I have read from uh, the uh, the latest book by Larry Wolf about Woodrow Wilson and the phrase of Woodrow Wilson and the Paris Peace Conference that he was asked about Ruthenians. Uh, what's happening with Ruthenians? And the answer well, was, well, uh, I'm, I know for sure that there is something going on about Ruthenians, but I unfortunately I don't remember what exactly 
exactly. <laughs> so it, it shows also how the Ukrainian question was really... Um, so this principle of national self-determination ended on, uh, on, on, on basically maybe on Polish self-determination, if you are talking about this Polish-Ukrainian um, uh, relations and not on... on uh, so it's interesting how we see, for example, the hundreds of years afterwards, how the Ukrainian question has changed since then. But let's talk, we, we talked about this already interesting, you know, approach, how we see, uh, how we try to, how historians try to go uh, away this binary opposition between empires and nations. What other approaches do you think are fruitful, interesting, innovative in writing Ukrainian history? So I think there's a few things that are going on right now that are very exciting. And one of them is that people are approaching Ukrainian history not from a Ukrainian perspective, right? So there's a lot of work being done now where scholars have started, for example, as historians of the Soviet Union. They've been trained in that field. Or they've been trained as historians of Eastern Europe more broadly. And as they go deeper into their field of interest, they realize that actually the most interesting stories to be told are about Ukraine here. I th- I'm thinking of a colleague of mine, Mayhill Fowler, who writes a lot about theater. And so what she's what she realized as she wrote more and more about theater in the late imperial and early Soviet periods is that when you actually got down to it, who was doing the most innovative things, who was tying into the most kind of global trends. It was actually the Ukrainian theater, the, the dramatists, the actors, all of them were coming out of this Ukrainian context. And so then if you turn the story inside out like that, it tells us a lot about that time period beyond these traditional frameworks of the Soviet, right? The other thing that I think is happening has to do with this more longstanding tradition of transnational history. Um, and now this sort of spin on transnational history that's really gaining traction and I think in a really exciting way is thinking about global history and putting Ukraine into this broader global historical picture. And so, of course, Yaroslav Hrutsak's newest book does exactly this for a Ukrainian audience, making sense of all of the ways in which Ukrainians themselves move around the world, right? Not just these traditional Ukraine to Vienna pathworks, but all much more broadly. And also how the Ukrainian economy is connected, how th- Ukrainian thought is interconnected with all of these. And so thinking about it not just as one piece of territory, but rather these individual um, people and actors who circulate. I think this is extremely important because we kind of are also these in Ukraine, I think we are living in this juxtaposition, you know, well, our voice is not that much heard, so we should tell more stories about ourselves but uh, the best thing to tell our stories about ourselves is to connect to other stories in other uh, other regions and other parts of the world and the book of Yaroslav Hretsak uh, that you mentioned uh, recently had the honor to moderate kind of a discussion about it in, 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 in Kiev it really tries to go and from different perspectives tries to look at for example violence in these very very difficult times between well basically two uh, world wars and uh, between them from 1914 to 1945 or even we can count it later and it's it's important you know to go away from this perspective well 
of, of a particular violence against particular people. So it's important to see this whole region, this whole, well, as Tim Snyder called it, bloodlands, but in terms of, you know, there, is, there was this virus, virus of violence, which was going through different ethnicities, different empires, different nation states, and why it was do- doing so. And when you approach it from that question, when you disrupt these sort of old frameworks that we're used to, you begin to see it in a very new way, right? You're disrupting these debates that we've been having for so long now that everyone has their entrenched position and it's hard to budge them. But when you think about this, when you think about this question of violence within this broader context, and not only the bloodlands, but actually a global context, then yes, you begin to see where did these trends come from? Who were they reading? How did they get these ideas? How Who did they share these ideas on with? And then that becomes really important, I think. Yeah, it, it also becomes a moral discussion because, I mean, today we're sometimes in this discourse of, you know, monopolization of victimhood. I mean, Ukrainians have this trend. The, the, the Polish narrative has this trend. Sometimes we see also the uh, approaches to Holocaust, which also have this trend. For Ukrainians, it's, it's, in, it's very difficult right now to think critically about the Holocaust and the, uh, the, 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 the participation of the Ukrainian population in that, right? So, and... Well, it's a, it's a difficult intellectual task right now in the current world in which this xenophobia is, you know, really on the rise. So this is very important that historians do this job. You mentioned this um, uh, Mayhill Fowler work on, on, on theater. It's interesting that she also talks about the Jewish theater, so how they are connected, the Ukrainian and Jewish theater in, in early Soviet Union. You know, basically, they were, uh, they became victims of, of the Soviet regime. Uh, Ukrainians a little bit earlier, uh, Jewish theater literature a little bit later but still I mean uh, the, the, the same similar story of people being killed sometimes uh, without judgment sometimes as a just you know as a thug attack etc but uh, what other perspectives are interesting for example this famous borderland perspective right so we see for example the perspective uh, done by Alfred Rieber and his Eura- this perspective on the Eurasian borderlands and for example when I talked to Yaroslav Rezak he told me that uh, he's inspired in some aspects on this because in this context you, you see Ukrainian history as a part of a bigger uh, history of what we might call the Eurasian steppe in which basically there are numerous empires. There is Habsburg Empire, Ottoman Empire, Russian Empire, but also Persian Empire, Chinese empires, etc. Um, do you think this is a productive approach? So I, this is when I, so I get the privilege of teaching Ukrainian history here in Vienna to um, students at the diplomatic academy. So these are the future right, European diplomats who are going to go out and kind of try to shape European foreign policy. So I get to teach Ukrainian history to them. And one of my favorite things to do, their final essay, I ask them to reflect on one of the common tropes that's used to describe Ukrainian history in popular stereotypes that appear over and over again in the media, things like that. And one of them is this question of borderlands. And what I try to direct them towards over the course of the term is to think that borderlands can mean so many different things. That it is not simply this borderland between East and West in this kind of very narrow, boring sense that we're very accustomed to thinking of it. But instead, absolutely, you can open that framework and think about a different sort of borderland. And it could be a sort of Eurasian borderland, absolutely. It could also have to do with cultural frontiers. It could have to do with religious frontiers. It's not only 
one going in one geographic direction and one thematic direction. So the more ways we can think about borderlands, I think the better. And you 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 mentioned the question of agency. I think for Ukrainians, it's it's sometimes very hard to accept this metaphor because. Uh, we feel that this is a lack. This is a metaphor for the lack of agency, and we know this. You know how it transforms into diplomatic discourse. Then, well, borderlands means in between states, or cushion states, or buffer zones, and nobody wants to be a buffer zone because if you are in the logic of buffer zone, you are in this geopolitical logic uh, in which basically it's also the fight against big powers, and then you are just <laughs> a territory for their fight. But um, I think if we think about borderlands. Uh, We should not necessarily ask a question borderlands of what, because there is not one thing of what. For example, we cannot say that Ukrainian lands were developing as a borderlands of Russian Empire, or even between Russian and Habsburg Empire. The 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 picture is much more complicated. So it's a kind of a when the borderlands itself becomes a center of movement just because it combines so many other agents and influences, right? Well, yeah, and so I think this is where we as historians can maybe push back a little bit against the sort of foreign policy-dominated thinking, right, and say, actually, borderlands are some of the most innovative, exciting spaces where the most encounters happen in this way that creates all sorts of new things, right? There's ambiguities there, and ambiguity is often very productive. And it actually, in some ways, gives more agency to the people who are living there because they have all this space to operate in that can move in a lot of different directions at once. And the other thing is... Um, Borderlands? Okay. But uh, talking about 19th century, 19th century we can find lots of uh, stories like that. My favorite is uh, a Polish writer, po- uh, Michal Tchaikovsky, who, who was uh, of, uh, who was, well, a representative of this, you know, Ukrainian school in Polish romanticism. He wrote a big poem, Verni Horai, about this image of Ukrainian Kozak who, who you know, predicted the, the death and rebirth of Poland. And then he 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 went to turkey he adopted islam and you know became a uh, a pasha in turkey and then he came back he came back to kiev he adopted orthodoxy so he combined everything you can and uh, well i wonder maybe one day he would also you know become jewish or something like that or hasidic author but you really have lots of stories like this in yeah well and to talk about one of the um, ukrainian historians that you and i have discussed before tchaikovsky is one of lisiak Rudnitsky's trio of Polish actors who were involved in some ways in the shaping of Ukraine in the 19th century. My favorite, going back to the church, is Hippolyt Terlatsky, who was himself a convert to Greek Catholicism from Roman Catholicism. Then, when he got frustrated with how um, the Vatican wasn't respecting the rights of the Greek Catholic Church, he converted to Orthodoxy and ended his life in the Russian Empire. So, uh, all of these folks are moving among these contexts in ways that if we just tell the story as one of Ukraine between the Habsburgs and the Russians or whatever, we don't get the nuances of these life stories that are so exciting and so diverse. And I think that's really exciting. It's interesting how we differently look at them because I imagine that in 19th century probably people will look at those stories as the stories of traitors, you know, people who really um, are traitors against their identity, etc. Another my favorite story, we also discussed it with with Hartangel Krimsky, who is basically a heir of um, Crimean Tatar who emigrated to to um, to Rzeczpospolita in late 
uh, 17th century converted he was he was a mullah so he was a and he converted to um, to christianity and then we have all this tradition very interesting how krimsky also opens up ukrainian historiography to the east for example how he talks about turkey in a, in a, in a more objective way not in the way how ukrainians were talking about turkey or crimean tatars in the 19th century right i think that's a, i think he's a fascinating example of this and this brings me back to what i was thinking about earlier which is this question of um, center and periphery, right? Which is now often kind of a denigrated framework of understanding what's happening. People say, oh, that's too simplistic, right? It's not that. But there's another step we can take that I think makes thinking about center periphery much more productive, which is to say peripheral can happen to anyone at any time in any number of ways. You can be peripheral not simply geographically, but you can be peripheral in terms of your class status, in terms of your linguistic groupings, right? Even in terms of gender. And so when we bring this framework into the individual actors that we're thinking about when telling stories of Ukrainian history, that may also help us get out of these simplistic ways of telling it. But it's interesting also how periphery comes to the center. So this is the way how we can read Ukrainian-Russian relations, for example, how the ideas of absolute monarchy, absolutist monarchy were coming in the 18th century or late 17th century through Ukrainian intellectuals who are not necessarily were thinking at themselves as Ukrainian intellectuals at that time, but were forming the idea which would create the Russian empire of Peter, Peter and, and Catherine II, which would destroy basically Ukrainian autonomy. Or we can think about this uh, this of uh, you know a, a nation centered or I would say folklore centered romanticism in the 19th century who also thanks to the German or Polish influences bringing this idea of Narod to St. Petersburg and then how it it, um, uh, it was changing in in the in the ideology uh, ideology of Russian Empire so we can uh, think in this way too absolutely I think we can and then if we want to push that even for forward even further right it's hard not to think about the Soviet experience in some ways here and how Ukrainians rise through the Soviet ruling apparatus and shape the way that the Soviet Union functions, especially in its later decades. Yeah, this is for, this is a very interesting topic for Ukraine right now because in Ukraine we have this, you know, okay, the Soviet is still alive, so we cannot really have a distance to it. It's maybe historians should try to do that, but uh, when the Soviet kind of mode of thinking, modus operandi is still alive in the government, in the universities, etc., you well, there is a, a need to kind of to to break break this huge heritage which is still which is still there, but. Um on the other hand, I think it's very simplistic to think that uh, Soviet part of Ukrainian history was only a story of occupation. It's it's much more uh, difficult than that. And, and for, from my perspective, it's very interesting to study the Ukrainian leftist movements uh, and to look at the 20s, for example, and, and Ukrainian version of communism with Khvilovy, uh, Skripnik or others is a very interesting thing, actually. And Ukrainian socialism of, uh, of Vinichenko, for example, also is a very interesting thing, something very different from the Russian uh, communism because it was much more decentralized, it was much more focused on these cooperative movements, it was not really thinking in terms of this dictatorship of proletariat or whatever else. I think you're really wise to say that. I think that's one way to break this logjam in a certain sense, right? Is to re 
tell the story of the 20th century, retell the story of communism, not giving this monolithic Soviet narrative, right? And so one of the ways that perhaps it's easier for those of us coming from outside the Ukrainian context to start to tell that story has to do with Ukrainians' role within the Soviet apparatus. But another way to approach that story, as you say, is to tell this different story of the Ukrainian left over the 20th century. And we can also look at the Soviet Union as a kind of a product of this thinking of Ukrainian intellectuals about the federalization of the Russian Empire. So, and, and the Leninist thinking about the nation question was probably also influenced by that, but that pressure, I would not say thinking, but pressure for Ukrainians and some other nations. And of course, I mean, Soviet Union was not really a federation, but it was a time bomb because in the end, you had republics with their borders. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, the borders, these borders and kind of these quasi-public institutions, they played their role. And in a certain sense, what we what is happening right now with these questions of uh, annexation and occupation, etc., it's a continuation of that story too. So it, this is this shows how the history is is going on right now. Yeah, also. the history does have a long tail, absolutely, and I think that that be- precisely because the history has these echoes over time and over the decades, that it's so important to tell the rest of the world the Soviet story using Ukraine, integrating Ukraine into that story, right? One of the projects that we at the Institute here were involved in recently was publishing the English translation of the memoirs of Miroslav Maronovich. Um, and what that allowed us to do was to recenter the dissident story, the human rights dissident story, which is so often told through an exclusively Russian lens, right? Recenter it and say, actually, it's a Ukrainian story in a lot of ways. There are really interesting Ukrainian influences, nuances to it when you tell it from the perspective of a Ukrainian that, That's fantastic. That's uh, the thing that I'm trying to tell uh, on every occasion, that Ukrainian dissidents movement is very interesting. And not only Ukrainian, we can talk about Jewish, Armenian, Georgian, etc. So it's, it's a very interesting uh, thing because we are kind of imprisoned, I think, with these two major pillars of, uh, of Russian dissidents, uh, uh, Sakharov and Solzhenitsyn, uh, with that kind of uh, both were a little bit blind to this national question. Uh, Solzhenitsyn in a bad way, I think, because the, the thing that he came up uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union was basically re-establishment of the old Russian imperial thinking, which is not really understood, I think, by Solzhenitsyn's fans in the West. But uh, Ukrainians are interesting in the way, not only Ukrainians, all this you know, human rights movement, right? The Helsinki groups, etc. in in 76. uh, It's a kind of a shows us how, for example, you can think at the same time about the individual emancipation, individual rights and national emancipation community rights. And in this sense, you can make the patriotic identity discourse very much human rights focused and not anti-liberal as we have it today. And at the same time, the liberal discourse also thinking about the rights of communities, right? I think one of the things that's so radical about the Helsinki group, and Maronovich in particular in the way he tells his story, is that what they wanted was the right to live how they wanted to, 
right? It was the right to make their own choices, not to conform in every single detail to what was prescribed to them. And that can, for some individuals, that can include the national choice. It can include the decision to embrace Ukrainian language in the Brezhnev era, right? But for others, maybe it won't. And yet, to fully embrace the notion of human rights, you have to let others make that national choice if they want. And the national choice, in turn, has to respect everyone's right to participate or not, as long as we're all doing it with this same good-intentioned respect for each other's rights. Yeah, and we should also see, look at these uh, dissident movements as a kind of, you know, also the melting pot, because we have uh, Jewish dissidents who are inspired by Ukrainians, you have Jewish writers who then, I mean, one of the best things written about Ukrainian dissidents was written by Mikhail, uh, Mikhail Haifetz, or Mikhail Haifetz, uh, his essays about Stools, Chernobyl, Haifetz, if it was Jewish, you know, and then you have, of, of course, Crimean Tatar dissidents. So now in Ukraine we have, okay, this is a minority. Marinovich is a person that I admire and we are constantly communicating because we are part of this uh, First December group. And uh, he is a very interesting and, and he's a real moral authority in today's Ukraine still, you know. And we see how this dissident heritage is still uh, powerful in Ukraine. Well, powerful not maybe dominating because Ukrainian politics is a very specific thing, but powerful in the society, you know. It's very important. So, uh, maybe uh, let's think about this, we, we touched it already, the colonial, post-colonial thinking. So, it's it's also very important for Ukrainians to think about in these terms, you know, to high, kind of um, take this post-colonial uh, global discourse as a kind of uh, return uh, of the speech to the speechless or voice to the voiceless. Do you think it is productive perspective for Ukrainian history? I think it's a productive perspective insofar as it's one of many perspectives, right? So I think what when it starts to become more obscuring than elucidating is when we try to shove everything into that lens, right? There are aspects of the Ukrainian experience that don't fit in with the post-colonial narrative. Um, and that has to do with the specificities of the 20th century, but also earlier. It has to do with the way the 19th century functioned and even the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. We can go back as far as we want, right? But I think if we exclude it entirely, then we don't necessarily get a full understanding of the power dynamics at play. And these power dynamics are deeply rooted in, like, people, there's a deep awareness of them and so to deny that they are there is then to make our history sound untrue. The way we tell history doesn't come across as authentic or genuine if we don't include some aspect of this post-colonial narrative to it. Yeah, I, th I think we cannot really simplistically look at it because if we go look back at the Russian Empire, we see a certain you know influence of Ukrainians, both intellectually and on the administrative level. The Soviet Union will already mention this, uh, but we see also this... I think it's important to see the relations between, let's say, Moscow and Kiev also as relations uh, as an um, imperial thinking trying not only to colonize, but also to assimilate. And this is something that uh, we cannot really understand it from this post-colonial uh, in terms of if we look on the maritime empires, if we look on the British Empire, French Empire, we should rather think in this, it's, it was not, I think it was also Lysak Rudnitsky who was, or Igor Shevchenko, I don't remember, who pointed at the fact that 
it was not only colonization but assimilation and assimilation in 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 post post colonial discourse is saying all well, you are the other means that you are inferior and there is a play of difference the power dynamics is going with this difference thing in the assimilation discourse it is say well you are the other but you have a chance to become uh, as 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 we are for example you are little russian well you have a chance to become a great russian by renouncing your language etc you are ukrainian well you 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 have a chance to become a soviet person the homo sovieticus right do you think that this kind of a makes this difference i see definite advantages to thinking about it in terms of the possibilities of assimilation i would argue that the possibilities of assimilation were open only to certain types of people at certain times throughout this history right and in that sense perhaps it's it is it does bear a lot of similarities not to things not to the maritime empires in some ways but to other stories historically um i mean in some cases in the hubsburg situation right at a certain class level there was the chance that you would some that the nobil the utmost the top levels of the nobility could in some ways be absorbed into the Habsburg ruling class. And as an American, I can't help but also think of in some ways the American experience in a very strange sense, which is to say the bounds of whiteness change over time, right? And so there's an the, the famous book is How the Irish Became White. And so they come to the US and are not nece- not initially thought of as part of the dominant group, right? But over time, not necessarily through any act of their own, and this also makes me think of the case of Ukrainians within the Russian Empire, not necessarily by any decisions they're making, but because the dominant definition changes, then they are included or excluded depending on how things change. And I think in the case of the Russian Empire, there's also some of that going on, right? Or to what what one of the things i write about in terms of the 19th century is the notion of great of all russian and how that loses some impact over time how earlier in the 19th century the sense of all russian was really dominating that obviously white russians little russians great russians were all part of the same group but as the 19th century goes on a lot of especially the russian nationalist thinkers begin to say absolutely not we don't want anything to do with you you're not ev- the possibility of assimilation is not open to you and so i think it elucidates some things but then again we have to be very careful how we're thinking yeah, it's, about it's it. Yeah, it's very it's very interesting how we can for example if we look at the 19th century at early stages after the for example it 1820s 1830s we we see this uh, you know uh, cultural creativity coming from uh, from Ukrainian lands of course we're thinking about Gogol etc and the way how this romanticism or the collection of songs uh, the Maximov Maximovich and others who are coming first from from Ukrainian lands but then of course it was rather thinking in terms of well this is part of this great russian story and ukraine was saying that look uh Ukrainian culture was kind of a saying that we have those roots that you lack in St. Petersburg because here there are people who are you know on this unwritten culture and very deep and you are speaking French and German and you 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 have your roots cut so at a certain moment this changes this changes with Shevchenko but especially in the uh, 1860s so it's very interesting to see and this way what other perspectives do you think are interesting because we are talking about you know empires nations 
post-colonialist, but maybe some other things, say economic history, military history. What what else are you thinking about? So I think it's a it's a good question, and I'm trying to think of some of the most interesting work that's being done right now. I think, and, and this is something that I know is very dear to your heart. I think intellectual history is something that is really only only just now beginning to start to emerge, connecting Ukrainian intellectual history to broader trends. Um, there was very recently a very good intellectual biography of Dmitry Donsov that came out by an American scholar, and it is kind of Trevor Erlacher, and it's kind of a good beginning in terms of English language scholarship connecting Ukrainian intellectual history. Um, and I think there's so much more work to be done there, so I'm really looking forward to what you yourself do in the future there. Um, other things that are happening, I would say um, the the biggest kind of most... Um, the, the biggest trend, I'm not sure I'd even call it a trend, but one of the kind of burgeoning microfields has to do with taking the regionality of Ukraine seriously, disaggregating Ukraine into cities that have very particular cultures, right? I have a good colleague who works on Kharkiv. There are several people working on Kharkiv and telling its story as a very unique place, right? Odessa is getting a lot of treatment in the same way. And I think that that is going to be great and really productive for breaking out of a dominant way of thinking in, especially in North American academia, which is that all Ukraine is, is Galicia and everything else. Right. That, th this is kind of just how we've all been conditioned. Well, the Ukrainian PMO and, and everything exactly. else. Yeah, I think, I think exactly. it's time really to overcome this perspective. But cities are very interesting because when I'm looking as a philosopher, I'm not a historian, but when I'm looking at the Ukrainian history, political history, I'm thinking, you know, maybe this is strange. And and strangely enough, we, we talked with Ritzak on this and he also has this perspective. I, I try to look at it a little bit differently, but I'm thinking about it. Italian city-states, especially in the Renaissance, when basically they were trying to formulate the republican idea of politics, but that was because they were, you know, smashed between the imperial, the Holy Roman Empire, the emperors and, and the popes, which all, both of them had this kind of imperial way of thinking and, and thinking in terms of heritage of the Roman Empire, the ancient Roman Empire, and how these people, the Machiavelli is, is one of them, but not the only one, how they were trying to develop this republican way of thinking, but it was possible only in terms of, you know, thinking about city-states. So Ukrainians, of course, are, you know, this, uh, inspired by by Italian example, primarily of Risorgimento. You mentioned Donsov, who is, uh, has his own uh, vision of Risorgimento, I would say a very bizarre one, but, uh, but we can also go deep and not only the 19th century, but for example, Renaissance, it's very interesting. Yeah, I think that that's one thing that Ukrainian history is ripe for, especially in the English language academic context, is to push us beyond, right? So right now, almost everything is about the 20th century. And I understand this. This is very important because we have access to archival stuff. Ukraine's archives do continue to be a gift to researchers who have not maybe been able to get access in the past. Now it's really quite accessible. And I'm really impressed with a lot of work that the Ukrainian archives have done in recent years. But now maybe 
it's becoming time to start reevaluating what we think the accepted narratives about earlier centuries as well. And I know some of my colleagues back in the U.S. are doing interesting projects, for example, on the emergence of um, the on the sort of um, intellectual currents within the Orthodox Church in the 16th century, 17th century, things like this. It's stuff that you don't necessarily think, oh, this is going to be super exciting, but actually but it is. But it's actually super exciting because if we talk about this Ukrainian Baroque and exactly. the way how the Orthodox Church was fighting against the Catholic expansion but using the Catholic means, you exactly. know, setting up universities and, uh, you know, publishing books, including in Latin, etc., it's, it's, it's very interesting. So we, we can think about how, for example, the counter-reformation, uh, the Catholic counter-reformation or reformation, its Catholic version of reformation was also shaping these um, yeah, Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian, uh, Ukraine as a political, cultural space. And this is what Ukrainian history has to offer to the field of history more broadly. Right. We have been for a while now, we've been really thinking about how can we take broader trends, broader developments in the historical profession and apply them to Ukraine. But what if we reversed that? Right. What if we started it and said, this is what's happening in Ukraine. That changes how we think about the counter-reformation. It changes how we think about the reformation. And this is something that we, this is like a mission that stands before us, is to convince these people who are used to only thinking about Italy, Germany, France, that the story isn't complete until we bring Ukraine into it. And so that's the task ahead of us, and we're we're doing the best we can. We'll keep trying and keep trying to tell these stories. But there is this sense in which the dominant mental models have been adopted from the time period in which they were established, right? Unquestioningly, as I write about the 19th century, and as I write my, in my specific case, I'm writing right now about the Uniat Greek Catholic Church in the 19th century, right? So as I sit down to read about it, read the existing historiography, what I notice is there's a body of literature on the Uniat Church in the Russian Empire and how it's eliminated. There's a body of literature on the Greek Catholic Church in Galicia and how it became a national institution. There's absolutely nothing that connects the two halves and says, actually, these are related things. Well, and why is that? In a large part, that's because we as historians working today have passively accepted the imperial boundaries that were established by bureaucrats sitting in Vienna and Petersburg. We have said, well, this is just the way the institution was. It just stopped at this border. But what happens if we start if we step back and we question those models that were imposed by the empires, then that's when interesting new things open up. You see the way that the church crossed those boundaries. Priests themselves crossed, ideas crossed. And that's only in this one small case. There's so many other ways in which this same way of stepping back and reevaluating can help us. That's exciting. That's really, really fantastic. And there is so, so much to do in the future about the past, right? So, so thanks so much for, for this conversation, very exciting conversation. We talked with Catherine Younger, who is the research director of the program Ukraine in European Dialogue and the Institute for Human Sciences in, in, in Vienna. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, uh, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Follow us follow our website follow our podcast on SoundCloud Google Podcast Apple Podcast and stay with us